This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. Do you ever wish that you had more time in your day? What would you do with an extra hour all to yourself? Would you go for a run? Take a nap? Read a book? The possibilities are endless. Therapy can help you find what matters to you so that you can do more of it. It's a great way to increase self-awareness, deal with overthinking, alter negative behaviors, and more. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online and designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Learn to make time for what makes you happy with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash heartwisdom today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash heartwisdom. Our breath is kind of a mirror for us. Most of the time we don't look in that mirror. It's the mirror of our energy. It's the mirror of our openness. Feel how full your breath is at different times. If you want to see what's happening in you, pay attention to your breath. Welcome to the Jack Cornfield Heart Wisdom Hour. We are delighted to share with you Jack's innate common sense wisdom and his clear open heart. If you are interested in supporting Jack's podcast, go to BeHereNowNetwork.com slash Jack. Tonight I really want to talk about one of the last steps of the Eightfold Path. And this is the step of right concentration, right tranquility. Actually, what I want to talk tonight about in concentration is the breath, our life breath. In every moment that we are alive, unless we consciously hold our breath, we live in this very fine and beautiful sea of gas of air, oxygen and nitrogen, carbon dioxide, and a few other lesser inert gases. And six or eight or ten or twelve times a minute, we breathe it in, this gas, into our lungs, and it goes down all the way into the little sacs and alveoli, or whatever they're called in the lungs, that fill up and exchange oxygen and carbon dioxide and, and cleanse our system. And somehow we are so connected with this ocean of air on the earth that we're like fish in water. We don't notice it. You don't see it. And mostly if we forget, we breathe it. Yet it's essential and it's so important in our physical life. And in some way, to connect with it, to touch it, is a way to open our spiritual life very practically very straightforwardly. I think I've told the story in previous groups um, about watching the breath and what it's like to begin to observe the breath of my friends whose baby was born out in the country with no doctor um, and it was born breech and it was blue and wasn't breathing. This little tiny infant, and they gave it infant artificial respiration, and they sat with it and waited to see if it would breathe whether it would be alive, whether their son would be part of their family. And they said that's where they learned what it was like to watch the breath. It wasn't even their own breath. 
I would like to really pay attention to see, will there be a breath? And this very same couple, who are good friends of mine, their um, uh, the woman's mother died a few years ago. Who'd done a lot of retreats, and she died of young lung cancer at about 85 or so. Um, she had got cancer earlier and had a long remission and did her last dance rather wonderfully and admirably. And then when the cancer came back and she finally died, she said in her last week she talked about it, how her whole last week in the hospital was waiting to see, because her lungs were filled with fluid and so forth, waiting to see if the next breath would come, whether she'd be able to breathe the next breath. And she was so grateful for the meditation that she'd done. She said, otherwise it would have driven her crazy, but here it was. It was something she could really use. And she did for her whole last week of life. And she died in a very beautiful way. Our breath is kind of a mirror for us. Most of the time we don't look in that mirror. It's the mirror of our energy. It's the mirror of our openness. Feel how full your breath is at different times. If you want to see what's happening in you, pay attention to your breath. Is it real big? Can you take a nice full sigh? Sighs are wonderful. Do you know about sighs? Everybody takes size, generally about once a minute, as far as I know. Um, we do. And I know this more from my father being on the respirator from his heart surgery a couple, uh, six weeks or two months ago when I was there. They put, him, they put a tube in his throat and they have this respirator which breathes for you when you can't breathe. And it has this funny thing on it. It has a little dial which says, sigh adjustment on it. <laughs> this is true. And every... Eight or ten or fifteen breaths, you have to sort of get it right for that person. Um, it'll make eight regular, even breaths, and then there'll be this <sighs> big breath that it takes for you. <laughs> it does, because it's part of the normal respiratory system to take regular size, regular big breaths. And it was wonderful to see it. It kind of made concrete this sense of what the breath is when it can be big, when you can sigh, is a kind of a letting go. <laughs> That's beautiful. So sigh. Let yourself sigh once in a while. <laughs> Make it your meditation. Anyway, I mean it just to say the breath is a mirror of how we are. When you're afraid, have you observed your breath? What does it do? Short. It gets short. What else do you observe with your breath? It gets more rapid. Sometimes it stops. Can you feel what it does in your body? Generally, for a lot of people, the diaphragm won't move hardly at all. And there'll be a little breathing from the, from the chest. All kinds of changes happen with fear. Observe it. I mean, if you want to learn about fear, one good place to start is with the breath. Or when you're angry, what does your breath do? Or when you're passionate. Or when you're calm. Or when you're in a traffic jam. You know? <laughs> All these things, you can learn a tremendous amount in this very simple mirror of working with the breath. You can learn about openness. How does it affect your heart? When your breath is really open, what is your heart like in terms of your feelings and your openness, connection with people around? Or when you feel your heart closed, without judging it, look and see what your breath does and what it's like. Does this make sense to you that you can use the breath in some way? Now, it doesn't mean to say that the breath is always going to be wonderful and open. It's like saying your heart should always be soft and wonderful and open. Um, I don't know. I mean, I, it's 
not, not my experience. It's like flowers. It opens and closes. And I remember a very important and extraordinary lesson. I was sitting around with um, Robert Hall, who some of you know, who's a body worker and um, gestalt therapist and started one of the people that started the Lomi School. Spent a lot of years in his own practice of developing ways of working with the body and opening and energy and breathing. And we were reading a book about the life of Ramana Maharshi, this great Indian saint. And there were some pictures of Ramana Maharshi in the last part of his life with cancer. And his body was contorted and twisted and it looked tight and it, it certainly looked like he couldn't breathe very well and it looked like he couldn't move very well. And the description from the people who were with him was that he was in pain and he would go to sleep and there would just be these moans and things that would come out of his body. And at the same time, his eyes were exactly the same as those pictures of five or 10 or 20 years before. They were wide and bright and completely clear. And there was just this real sense of depth and love. And Robert looked at that and he said, my God, here I am trying to get people to open their bodies and it really has nothing to do with it, does it? And it's not completely true. I mean, that's one end of the spectrum. Because it is true that if you breathe and if you open and if you, if you run and if you exercise and so forth, that that physical opening helps the heart and the mind to open. But I just have to say that because people somehow um, tend to take everything as absolutes or, or once in a while they will. And in fact, the heart is the heart and it can be open in fire and it can be open in, in um, ease. But for most of us, and most of the time, breath is a mirror. It's really something to work with. You can work with it in martial art, you know, as a way to marshal one's power. You can work with it if you have meetings and it's boring or it's, it's difficult. Go to your breath. Do ten breaths where you just pay attention to your breath. And you find your relationship to all the circumstances changes around you. You can read, it's a, it's a practical tool for living in the world. Now, what makes it practical? What makes it useful? What makes it useful, beside the fact that it's a mirror, is that it's the place to learn the art of concentration. Concentration has two parts to it, okay? One part is a quieting, is a tranquility. And without that, we don't so often hear the voice of God, as Mother Teresa said somewhere here. She says, we need to find God, or whatever you want to call it, our true nature. And this cannot be found so easily through noise and restlessness. God, or truth, is a good friend of silence. See how nature, trees, flowers, grass grow in silence? See the stars, the moon, the sun, how they move in silence. The more we receive in silence, the more we can give in our actual life. And so the first part of this element of concentration is using the breath to learn to become quiet or tranquil. To become still. Not to seek quite so much, but to slow down. Our culture is so fast, we fill it up all the time. I know it very well when I look at my schedule book, you know. I lived for 10 years without a schedule book while I was teaching until I 
got married and had a baby and all that stuff. And it was really a shock to get another day by day or week by week and start filling it up again. But it's not just that. It's the speed of the traffic. It's the speed of the news. It's the speed of um, our interaction. Um, And somehow in it, we forget. Do you know what it means to go for a walk on Mount Tam or down to Point Reyes or or, um, somewhere in the country for a little while? And what it does to our ability to feel the sea of air that we live in or to, to stop and reflect what we care about in our lives or to feel the tension in our body and somehow let it melt a little bit. to spend time alone, to listen. And somehow I think that our speed is partly what makes the bomb. I don't think we could do it if we were slower. I really don't. So that's the first part of of concentration, is just slowing down a little bit, letting things settle, stop waving our arms so much. Then the second part I want to go into in some depth for the next 20 minutes or half an hour, is really need to talk about what it's like to work with the breath as a vehicle for concentrating the mind and the heart. Um, and it is somewhat technical. Well, I've given lots of other kinds of talks. Hopefully there will be some use for you if you're doing some regular meditation. To concentrate the mind means to collect it, to have it become steady or one-pointed, like a candle flame in a windless place where it's steady and it doesn't flicker so much. And every great spiritual and yogic tradition works with concentration. Do you know that? Whether it's the Hasidic prayers or the Jesus prayer or mantra or um, the shamans who do uh, certain kinds of incantations or rites to concentrate the mind. Not to speak of Buddhist and Hindu yogas of every kind work with concentration. Do you know why that is? Do you know why? Does anybody have an idea why? Why is it concentration so stressed to collect, to concentrate the mind? Do the breath, do a mantra, focus on a light, focus on a prayer, say it over and over again. Sit out in the woods as an Indian, roll a little stone around a big one until your mind gets concentrated and you have visions. Does anyone know? Okay, that's the first part of it. That's very nice. Because you can't understand what's real or true except in the moment. Otherwise, it's thought about past and future, so it's fantasy. So that's one good reason. Why else? It gives you something to work with. It collects it so you can, you can use it. it. Collects your mind so you can use it, and it gives you something to work with which means it gives you a vehicle to collect it. Is that what you mean? Okay, so that's another reason. You concentrate in order to find a way to collect the mind. Collect the mind to be present. Why else collect it? Why else concentrate? Any other reason? And here are all these yogis in Egypt and the Desert Fathers and India and the Taoist monasteries learning concentration exercises. What for? So it's a way of focusing energy. That's another good answer. 
another good part of it. To concentrate the mind, mind is like light energy, and it can be focused in several ways. If you begin to concentrate it, it's like collecting light energy in a laser, instead of having it scattered in all directions. If you concentrate, the power of mind becomes... um, the power of mind becomes uh, usable when it's collected. You can train it at something and penetrate it. Another metaphor image to use is of a lens. If you concentrate the mind, it's like grinding a lens. If you focus and you concentrate and you come back again and again, and it becomes steady and still, you can see as if the mind were a microscope or a telescope. You can see into all other realms of consciousness through the power of concentration. Concentration is the main vehicle in almost every yogic and spiritual school for altering our level or our perspective of consciousness. When the mind is scattered and filled with thoughts, mostly all you see is your ordinary reality. Ordinary reality is real too, but part of what helps free us is to see that it's relative, that there are some other perspectives in life. And concentration is the vehicle to discover those other perspectives. It's also the way to learn to live in the present moment so then you can see what is true. Now suppose you were to start and work with concentration with your breath. What would the stages or steps be like as you followed it? Here are some of the things. The first is that you just learn to get here, as Jerry suggested. Okay, you count one to ten, or you count one to a hundred, or a hundred to zero backward, or you do rising and falling, or in and out. And finally, you start to become more present. It's what, uh, where does Ryokan say it here? My hut lies in the middle of the dense forest. Every year the ivy grows longer. No news of the affairs of men. Only the occasional song of a woodcutter. The sun shines, I mend my robe. When the moon is out, I read poems. I have nothing to report, my friends. If you want to find the true meaning, stop chasing after so many things. So that's the first step in watching the breath, is not chasing so far. What is that ad I just cut out of um, the IJ? It says, how to get what you want. This is today. Admit it, you want something bad. A new car, a bigger house a more challenging job, a clean garage, a chance to unload that stuffed Wolverine. You want something and you want it now, but it takes more than the power of positive thinking to make your dreams come true and on and on and so forth. Okay, so the first first level of working with the breath, of watching it, is not chasing after so many things, is counting, is watching the in and out, is just getting here with the reality of the moment of the breath coming in and out. That's already a lot, as you've probably noticed in sitting in an hour and trying to work with your breath. And I don't mean that one exclusively works with the breath because we work with sound. Most of you have a lot of the possible instruction and thoughts and feelings. But tonight I just want to focus on the power of working with the breath. So first you get here and you count or you feel the in and out or the rising and falling. Then the second level is that you can start to relate to the space between breaths. Has anybody done that in working with the breath? 
So you see there's the in-breath and there's the out-breath and there's the rising and falling. And as you get a little more silent, you start to see, hey, there's some room in there. There's some space. And it has two important points. One is it begins to teach us to relate to something that's less than busy and full all the time. Just teach us to relate to the elemental quality of silence, of openness, of space, by feeling that space between the breath. We don't take enough time to sense space. We keep filling it up. So in this little thing in the breath, it has something to teach us. Or if you like, this is a technique that's useful for some people, you can begin to use that space as a way to further um, continue the uh, refine concentration by working with some touch points. So for some people, they just sense space in, out, and then, ah, there's some space, and then the breath comes again out of nowhere. For others, because the mind wanders a lot in that space and it's difficult, they find it valuable to be aware of a touch point of the lips touching together or the hands in the lap or the buttocks on the cushion, in, out, touching, rising, falling, touching, in, out, lips touching, so that things start to become continuous and the mind doesn't wander off. First, forget what time it is, says W.S. Merwin in this poem, for an hour. Do it regularly every day. Then forget what day of the week it is and do this regularly in company for a week. Then forget what country you are in and practice doing it in company for a week and then do them together for a week with as few breaks as possible. Follow these by forgetting how to add or to subtract. It makes no difference. You can change them around after a week. Both will later help you to forget how to count. Forget how to count, starting with your own age, starting with how to count backwards, starting with even numbers, with Roman numerals, starting with fractions, with the old calendar, going on to the alphabet, forgetting it all until everything is continuous and whole again. So this is the second step of somehow learning to relate to space so things which are disparate in our mind, which is scattered, comes back to be more whole again. As we do it, so we start to watch the breath and we get to the point where we can let go um, of the past and future and be a little more present and there's the in and out and then we can relate to the space between breaths and we see the breath as the mirror of our emotions. You can learn a lot and learn a lot by observing anything. Here we're just going into one little aspect of experience, our breath. Then what comes as you can relate to the space and the touch point more? Then you get to where you can let go more, called letting go of some control. And in truth, one of the greatest aids to concentration is relaxing. Concentration isn't a forcing of your mind on the breath or on the pain or on the pleasant sensation or on the thought, but it's much more a sense of the opening, of the softening, of the receiving. That's what allows the mind to settle, to settle on the breath, to settle on sensation, settle on sound. So it means our learning how to not control so much. Have you noticed for many people when you start to work with the breath, there's this tendency to hurry it up or to move it or change it. 
and how it takes a little while. It takes some systematic training to work with the breath. Ah, where finally it just breathes itself. And I remember this friend of mine, an old Tibetan monk who I met this forest monastery. He was actually Hungarian, but he ordained with the Dalai Lama years before. He said the Dalai Lama let him go up in the mountains and visit the hermits who were in their caves, um, who saw almost no one. He went with one of the Dalai Lama's teachers, Ling Limpache. And he visited them, and he was kind of a neophyte at that time, just learning. And he said, well, what technique do you use? You know, and these people had spent 20 or 40 years in their cave or their little huts. And they said, technique? He said, yes, do you use a mantra? Do you follow your breath? And he said, the first hermit he asked about that just laughed and laughed. He said, the breath. He said, it breathes itself. <laughs> and that was all he said about it, the breath. It just breathes itself. And so this is that letting go of seeing actually that the world has a natural order that runs itself. We try so hard to control it. Take a rest, you know. Put your feet up a little bit. You don't run your heart or your liver and they do real good without you, you know. Ah. So there's counting and getting here. There's the space between and relating to space and the touch point. Then there's learning to let go and relax a little bit and start to sense the natural order rather than our controlling. As we do it, then what becomes possible, and the breath again is a vehicle like anything else to see, we can start seeing in a more, more refined way. You start to see the beginning and the middle and the end of the in-breath or the beginning and the middle and the end of the out-breath. That's an amazing thing. Most people never saw the beginning of a breath in their whole life. Why is it valuable? Who cares? So what if you can see the beginning of a breath? What's its purpose? Anybody got an idea? You see that it comes and goes, that things come and go. That's very nice. That as you start to listen, if you really concentrate, you see that wherever you are is being born and is dying. That every breath is a birth and a death. Every movement, every sensation, every sound, every sight. And you start to relate to the one thing maybe that we need to learn about, perhaps beside love. And that is birth and death. That is arising and passing of things. So here the breath is teaching you about the thing that everybody wants to know what happens when you die. A lot of people do, not every. Some people don't want the last thing they want to know. Don't tell me. You know, I don't want to hear. But a lot of people want to know. You want to know, look at your breath. The beginning, the middle. So you start to see it more clearly. And there's this beautiful sutra. There are many with this. The sutra on the mindfulness of the breath. And here the Buddha says to some monk, okay, go. Go, you guys, and find yourself a comfortable tree root underneath some tree out there and cross your legs and sit down and close your eyes and see if you can discover the whole nature of the world from your breath. It bears great fruit. Cultivate it regularly. Bring it to perfection. And first, breathing in long, you know I breathe in long. Breathing in short, I know it's a short breath. Experiencing the breath in the whole body. Calming the body with the breath. Observing the breath as it arises and passes. Calming the mind using the breath. And there's this whole set of instructions 2,000, 3,000 years ago saying, okay, you want to understand about life and death, 
Very, very simple. Here you are. Go take this and work with the breath. Sit down in some quiet place and you will begin to discover it. So the next stage is seeing finer, the beginning, the middle, the end. What breaths are long, which ones are short, when it's held, when it's released. And then more refinement, which I'll get to, the four elements and the mind and body. I'll get to that in a bit. You can see it earlier than I talk about. So you start to refine it and you see, oh, here's birth and death. Here's the beginning and end of things. Then the next stage is what I'd call training the puppy. You know, we've talked about that in other retreats and other things. It's like, okay, stay. And the puppy gets up and puts it on, stay. And it gets up and it runs around, stay. And you do it a million times. And finally, since the inner puppy is much more recalcitrant than the outer puppy, finally it starts to begin to learn. Now, what's involved in training the puppy? Has anybody ever trained the puppy, outwardly trained a puppy? Yeah? First of all, it takes some patience, doesn't it? Okay, and you have to be willing to let it shit all over a little bit if you want to have a puppy house broken or, or sit down. Similarly, it's true with the mind. As you start to concentrate, you will meet a wall or a sea of resistance. It's called kilesa in Sanskrit or Pali, which means hindrance or defilement. or really means um, burning in the mind. And if you sit, for example, if you try to do a kind of macho and muscle your way into concentration, which you can do if you want, you can experiment with it. Say, I'm just going to concentrate on the breath and not let my mind move. Try it for an hour and you will see what I mean. You'll see what I mean about fire. Because your mind, um, it's very hard for the mind to slow down. It has its own momentum like a flywheel. Your mind will kick up and throw out every reason to stop. There will be old angers and new desires and pains in the body and sounds and reasons to move and every possible thing other than feeling the breath. If you really say, I'm just going to put it on there. It's an interesting experiment to do just to try it. Not because that's really the way to learn to concentrate. You wear yourself out. It, there is a way but if you do that, but it's very, very hard. Why not take it a little easier? It doesn't take that much longer, actually, as long as you're persevering. But you can do it. And what you discover, even when you do it more gently, is that as you start to collect it, all the resistances come up. Fear, anger, desire, distraction, plans, or memory. And part of what it means to concentrate the mind is to purify it. I don't use that word so often, but it's an important one for this learning how to deepen meditation. Purification means that there are the, all these forces of grasping, of fear, of anger, whatever, that keep pulling us in every direction. And to collect it or to balance it means not that we get rid of these, but we learn somehow to let them come and, and almost like the fire that comes and burns through, and we don't grasp it. We let it come and we let it go. And in watching the breath, if you start to work regularly with the breath, say maybe you do it half of every sitting or some part of your practice, then all the things which we call for the moment chelases or fire or hindrance, they will all reveal themselves to you. And the purification is to honor them, to give them a little kiss when they arise, let them go gently to see them, and then come back again to the breath. And they are powerful. They are the force that, that kind of tears the mind around in circles. And so that's the first thing in training the puppy, is that you come to your resistance and you learn about what it means to work with resistance. 
And if you struggle against it, it makes it twice as hard. And if you do it gently and say, oh, there it is, there's desire, anger, wanting to take me away again, and you let it go and come back, you can learn really how to train the puppy, how to train the heart. Once you've gone through the resistance, then the next thing that happens in training the puppy is a sense of interest. Okay, then it's born more fully out of this, and there are two ways to express it. One is, um, again, more through the perseverance of it. Um, no, I'll start with the other one. The first is that as you get through the resistance, even watching the resistance is actually very interesting. Has anybody ever seen what it's like when they try and put their mind somewhere, what it does? It's like a fish out of water for a while. It everywhere. Look at it. It's interesting to see what it is that keeps us out of the moment. And after a while, as you do it and you keep bringing it back again and again, the breath starts to have its own interest, which is like uh, reading Agatha Christie. You know, in the beginning, the story may or may not be interesting, but as you go along and you get the plot and you get all the intrigue, you really start to wonder, well, who did it? What's going on? And similarly with the breath, at first it's difficult, but if you work with it for a while, it actually starts to become interesting. And just when you're reading Agatha Christie near the end and someone walks in the room, you don't even hear or see them because you're so interested in who done it. When you get finally through some of the resistance and you start to really be able to concentrate on the breath, it gets interesting. And all those other things which had disturbed you pass away much more easily. And you actually enjoy feeling it and seeing what it's doing. Now, the kind of interest one needs sometimes to go through this is the, the Zen story of someone going to this master and saying, please teach me. And he says, ah, you don't, you're not really sincere. I said, what do you mean I'm sincere? I want to learn. He said, go away. And this person comes back again and again. This is a master with a monastery on a stream. And finally, this young boy comes and he says, I really want to learn. And the master says, no, you don't. And he grabs him and throws him in the water. And he holds his head down under the water kicking and screaming, finally he lets him up when he's just about blue and out of breath. And the boy says, why did you do that? And the master says, when you want to learn what I have to teach, just like you wanted that breath, he said, then you can come and I'll teach you. That comes of itself, actually. Interest is something that also can be cultivated, can be nourished, can develop. If you work through resistance and all the things that come and you stay with it, there's an interest that comes all of itself. It's one of the factors of enlightenment. It starts to come by itself. So there's training the puppy, working through the resistance, having the interest arise, and then you get to what Suzuki Roshi calls burning completely, where, let me see if I just get his phrase right, because it's so nice. He says, in order to not leave traces with your thought, when you do something, do it completely with your whole mind and body. Like a good bonfire, you should not be a smoky fire, but learn to burn yourself completely, to throw yourself wholly into whatever you do. Well, that's an art. That's a gift. To love a person, to, to take a walk on the beach, to paint, to dance, to do your taxes, <laughs> but to do them completely and not do something else at the same time, you know? Save a little more money that way, maybe, when you pay attention. I don't know. But to do things really completely. 
So there's training the puppy, going through the resistance and discovering that the breath actually has a lot to teach, that it's interesting. And then the next is coming to rest. When you've done that finally, with, and you start to get interested and you've done it for a while, you come to rest on the breath. It's like what Don Juan says, stopping the internal dialogue, finally, of trying to plan and remember and going off in the past and the future and worrying and all those things. No trace of thought, finally coming back to where there is less desire. And where instead of trying to keep bringing your mind back, it's like at first it's like a mountain, and you climb up to the top and you balance there on the breath and then you fall off into sleep or restlessness. And you struggle up and there you are with the breath or in the moment and you fall off. And after a while it becomes like a valley. You do it again and again and again. And finally you start to actually settle on the breath. It's like the mind comes to rest in the body. And it'll go off in sleep or restlessness or desire, but then it slides back down and you come to rest in the moment. And it's delightful coming to rest. And out of the coming to rest then come the factors of enlightenment. There comes lightness and joy and tremendous sense of ease. And the body, once it starts getting concentrated, changes completely. And even if you wanted to sit slumped, you can't. The energy opens up, the breath opens up, and you just sit up straight. You can sit up straight for hours when the breath is opened and you're concentrated. It happens all by itself. You don't need so much sleep either. Good when you have babies and things like that. <laughs> you know? It happens all by itself. And then something else comes, light. When you really concentrate on any object, the breath or mantra or whatever, this very peculiar thing happens. There, with your eyes closed, there comes light in the mind. Some people see it as clouds. Some see it as like headlights turned onto them. Some see it as a bright sky or a sun. Some see it initially as colors of green or blue, but later on it turns into white light. I don't know why, but when the mind is concentrated, it fills with light. And it's not that far away. It's really accessible to a lot of people. I was reading these essays by um, Lewis Thomas this afternoon a little bit. One of them, he said, you know, we're such, we're so afraid of God in this country in this century, the scientific mind that we have. Even when we talk about the creation of the universe, the scientists call it the Big Bang. He said there was no bang. For sound, which is a very gross level of energy, you need air for sound waves to travel. There was no air. It was empty, dark space. He said there were no ears to hear it. There wasn't sound. He said what it really was, instead of the Big Bang, he said it was the great light. It was actually light, and that's a more accurate description, whether it's true or not, of what that first cosmic explosion or whatever you want to call it was. But it's a little scary to call it the great light. It gets a little bit too spiritual. So we'll call it the Big Bang. It's sort of like a tank or something like that. You know, scientists can relate to it in some way, you know. So what happens? You come to rest, and you come to this sense of peace, and then spontaneously in the mind comes light. It's this fantastic thing. And that's part of the reason why all these yogic and other traditions also work with concentration, because it opens the mind and the heart to allow our natural light to shine. And it's literally light. I mean, it's the weirdest thing. You can sit in the dark, and it seems like there's lights being shown on you. Maybe.
many kinds of light. So all these things, the mind becomes stable and joyful, rapture comes when it's peaceful. Why is there joy when the mind is concentrated? Anybody have any idea? Huh? Freedom from yourself, that's a good one. Getting away from oneself is always a treat. <laughs> Why else? It's a natural state, so, so there's rest. There's another simple reason. There's nothing else you want, which is to say that when you're really concentrated, the rent check, your girlfriend, um, your um, difficulties with your parents or your children, next year's um, travel plans, all are gone because there's not thought. The past and the future have disappeared. And when they're gone, it gets very groovy. It gets real quiet <laughs> and very happy because there's no worry and no fear. Fear is always about something that hasn't come. So is worry. So is desire. So this is kind of the anatomy of what the present moment can have for you in some ways. So you get to this level of lightness, joy, malleability of mind is another thing that happens. If you train concentration, you get to a point where this amazing thing happens, where you decide, I want my mind to be here, to listen to sound. And you put it there when it's trained in concentration, and it just stays there. And you listen as if you'd turn the radio to a particular station, and it just stays there. And there isn't thought and restlessness and interruption. It just stays there. Or you say, I want it to focus on this small or large. And the mind becomes malleable, shapeable, movable. It's the most delightful thing. It's fantastic. And you can do that. Of course, these kinds of education aren't part of our school system. But they are really our birthright. And it's the training of our own heart and our own mind. So it becomes joyful and light and peaceful and malleable. And then what happens? <coughs> Guess. Anybody? You get attached. That's right. It's called the corruptions of insight, which arise. The defilements of, of, of um, spiritual, spiritual materialism in its refined form. You say, this is groovy. I want more of it. It's like any other drug. And you get attached to the light or the lightness or the joy or the peace or whatever it is. And then you find that you're stuck there. And so you have to discover, even in that moment, that there's some deeper level of freedom. You're still working with the breath and all these states come and you try and hold them. Let them just come and go. Those two are not freedom. They're simply very groovy states of mind. They're very pleasant. They're, they're illuminating and light and peaceful. But they're temporary. Has anybody ever had a state of mind stay? Somebody won last week or whenever yelled out ignorance, but you know, <laughs> in general, in general, it's not the case. You know what I mean? Okay, so you do this and you get to where, where the mind becomes stable and clearer and, and so forth, and you're with the breath and it becomes so fine, it's like the tiniest breeze or the littlest movement. It's almost like the body breathes rather than the breath breathing, or the spring air comes and breathes you. It's wonderful. And the state of mind is very peaceful. And you stop grasping it. And then you reach, reach what's called access concentration. Access means it gives you access to all the realms that all those weird spiritual texts and things um, write about. Because at this point, there are very few thoughts. You rest in the present moment. The mind is very clear and tranquil and malleable and alert. 
and mindful spontaneously without struggle. There's a kind of clear seeing. And then things start to reveal themselves to you out of this access concentration. It's almost as if the mind, the lens has cleared or like a crystal goblet and you can see with a microscope either deeply or with a telescope way out into space. Has anyone ever heard of the um, biologist named um, Agassiz? He has, there's a big museum of glass flowers at Harvard. He's one of the great botanists around the turn of the century and before. A student of his went to begin his training as a botanist in the 18-whatever-it-was, 80s or something. And Agassiz took him and said, you want to learn to be a botanist or a biologist here? Take this fish. And he took this kind of dead fish and sat it on a piece of glass in front of him. And he said, um, study it, observe it, and tell me what you can see about it. And then he went away. He left the student there in the morning, and he went away for the whole damn day. And the student was seeing him for a while. He looked, there's this dumb dead fish, right? Um, and then he watched it for a while and for a while, and he got really more and more irritated that his mentor and teacher didn't come back. I mean, what did he want? Sure, it's a fish. It's got fins. It's got an eye. It's got scales. You know, maybe there, it's got six fins. That's a thick-finned fish, and it's got a little yellow over here near the gills or something like that. There was nothing especially interesting about it. It was like many he'd seen before, scales, mouth, eye, yes, a tail. In an hour, he thought he'd seen all there was to see. Time rolled on. The guy didn't come back for a long time. He was getting angrier and more irritated. Finally, after he got back from lunch, he was so discouraged. He wished the old, dumb old man had given him something more interesting. Then in order to kill time, he sat down with a piece of paper and he started to draw the fish. All right, I'll draw it. And in drawing, he began to notice things. He discovered, for example, the ways that the scales overlap one another. And then he began to see, as he drew the eye, that fish don't have any eyelids. And then he began to see um, the textures of the veins and the scales. And he kept on looking and drawing, and it got very interesting to him. And he drew for the late afternoon until the evening. And August came in and looked at his drawing and said, eh. He said, you haven't even begun to look at this fish yet. And the guy was heartbroken. And he said, I'll come back in a couple of days. You let me know what you can really see in the fish. And he spent two more days drawing different sides and aspects of the fish. And he said that three days was the foundation of his entire graduate work and his whole career as a botanist in that particular training. We're not taught that so much in our culture. But here we are with the breath now. We're up to the level of access concentration or to the level where and you can even begin as you sit and start to get quiet to the level where we're in the present moment and observing um, and not so distracted by other things and really with the breath. What can you begin to see? First of all, you see the four basic elements that make up the physical world. What Plato called earth, air, fire, and water, or the Chinese call them that. They maybe throw metal in there as well. I don't know why. Um, I do actually kind of, but more or less the same system or the Egyptians or the Indians. Those aren't some theory, earth, air, fire, and water. They are a description of actually how you perceive physical matter. Put your hand on the floor for a second. What do you feel? Tell me what you feel. Somebody? Hardness or softness. What else do you feel? Cool. Cool. So temperature. What else? Rough. 
Okay, so there's the texture. What's the roughness? Go into it with your tension. What does roughness actually feel like? Highs and lows. Highs and lows. Okay, so it's shape, but it's it's also different areas. Pay attention. See if it's not different areas of where it's hard here and soft there. Just hardness and softness alternating. What else do you feel? So there's temperature and then different areas of hardness and softness. Anything else? It's what? Dry. So you feel whether it's it's moist or dry. Flexible. So there's movement, the solidity or lack of it. Anything else? Space. Space. What's the space? I don't feel space. What's it feel like? Between the hardness. Between the hardness? Uh, So you feel points of hardness and lack of it. Okay, what else? One more thing to look for, especially. It's still. It's not moving. Can you feel that? Okay. Do you feel floor? Anybody feel floor or carpet? No such thing for your hand. What there is is hardness and softness. Similarly with the breath, if you observe it, instead of there being an in-breath or an out-breath or a rising or falling, if you look at it closely like the guy looked at his fish, what do you see? You see the um, what's called the fire element or the temperature element. Sometimes parts of it are cool or hot. You see temperature or you experience temperature. You see the earth element, which is the element of hardness and softness, really. And sometimes there's pressure, which is more hardness, and sometimes there's less pressure, and it's soft, or there's little dots of pressure and space in between where there's less pressure. So you see hardness and softness in the breath. You experience hot or cold. You experience fluidity, the water element. And you experience air. The air element is really the element of motion or vibration. So you experience it when it's still or when it's vibrating and moving more. Does anybody ever experience anything else through their physical senses? Temperature, pressure, hardness and softness, movement, solidity, vibration. And so what happens when you observe just this simple thing of the breath and your mind is concentrated? Play with it in your sitting. It doesn't have to be that concentrated. You just have to get here some. You can start to see that what you thought was breath or floor or wall through your body senses is actually this play of the basic elements. You can find out everything that Plato and the Chinese philosophers and all these other people or physicists have looked at, what is basic sense perception made of? Simply in the breath. There is no breath. There's coolness. There's little tiny, very soft pressure. And there's vibration and movement. That's all. Or, you know, in the belly, there's expansion, which is a different shape of that same pressure. And hardness and softness, that's it. And the whole world, instead of being solid, starts to reveal what its nature is, which are the play of the physical elements. And then you'll start to see the mind, the mental elements. This is called nama and rupa. Rupa is the physical elements that you perceive. And when you look closely, they're all a dance. They're all changing. There's no floor. There's no wall. There's just changing sensation. This is using the mind as a microscope. And you start to look closely into experience that seems solid on this level, which it is. And you can use your mind the same way someone uses a microscope. You look down into the pond water and you see it's alive with things. And you look at anything closely with your concentration and awareness and it dissolves into changing dance of sensations. And then the mental elements, which are feelings and reactions and the consciousness which knows it. 
and you start to see, I won't go into that so much tonight, maybe some other night, the, the, two, the play of these two things, of physical and mental events. And that's all that there is, is this dance of light and shadow and the perception of it. You see more deeply the arising and passing of things. And so you get to a deeper level of birth and death, and you see that not only every breath, but every sense door, every sound becomes vibration. Every sight, everything that you look at from that refined quality of the breath starts to teach you the movement of life and permanence, the dance. You can learn so much just watching your dumb breath, really. And there's a lot to be seen in it. And at times, admittedly, it's boring. You learn about boredom then when it's boring. And then finally, the last thing to say about it tonight, just to go into this a little more, is that at that point, one also has the possibility, beside the discoveries of insight, of seeing that it's really changing, arising, and passing mental and physical states, empty of any person or self, no separateness at all. All the kinds of wisdom that one reads about are available in just observing the breath. One can also enter all the realms of what are called jhanas, or high states of concentration. When the mind becomes so settled on the breath, then there arise joy and rapture and tranquility and concentration, and the concentration is applied and it stays there, it's sustained. You can turn your mind to space and just experience what it's like to experience be with space without, without any wandering of mind, the formless jhanas. You can turn your mind to a color, blue or green, and develop it till the whole mind becomes filled with a particular color and the energy of that color. Then, when you do this and you cultivate it really well, you have access to, if anyone's interested in this level of stuff, most of which I have not done, a little bit of what I've played with, not the powers part. In this book, The Path of Purification, two volumes, they probably have it at the Dawn Horse or something like that. There's um, chapters on how to develop concentration, and then ones on all the psychic powers, because all the powers of mind come from the power of concentration. How to read other people's minds, or how to walk on water, or how to do all these things. I don't know whether you can really do them. I haven't seen many of them done, except maybe reading of minds. But it said that they all come through this tremendous power of concentration. The way to walk on water, apparently, is to, um, <laughs> if you want to know, is to develop concentration to this very high degree where the mind is totally stable on the earth element until you become like the element of earth itself. And then you focus on the water and you walk on it. But one of the teachers where I studied in the Sunlin Monastery, he was saying that, let me see if I can find it. In these days, Yes, here we are. In these days, although concentration of mind and some of the insights and opening are very possible, many, many people can do that. He said the level of concentration for the supernormal powers are difficult to acquire. Let us say that one practices the earth element exercise and gains a mastery of it. To do the psychic power stuff, you not only have to be able to attain these very high levels of stability of mind, but you have to master it so you can go in and out of different ones at a moment's notice. Suppose you've mastered it, and I know a few, few people in Asia anyway have mastered these things to some extent. Let us say that, that such a yogi then goes to a pond and seating himself near it, arouses in himself the elements of the earth meditation. 
Then looking upon the waters of the pond, he endeavors to turn them into earth so that he may walk across them. He will find these days at most that the water thickens to a slushy earth which cannot really uphold his feet when he attempts to walk on it. The time, perhaps yogis in other countries have done better than I, but I believe the time's not so opportune as they used to be. <laughs> he just said, this guy is serious. But really what it talks about, I read one poem to end. This is from Kabir, and you may have heard it before. This is Kabir, the wonderful Indian poet. He's talking about a clay jug, which means one's own body or a clay jug. It doesn't matter. They're the same. He said, inside this clay jug, there are canyons and pine mountains and the maker of canyons and pine mountains. All seven oceans are inside and hundreds of millions of stars. The acid that tests gold is there, and the one who judges jewels, and the music from the strings no one touches, and the source of all water. If you want the truth, I will tell you the truth. Friend, listen. The God whom I love is inside. How can you see that in your body or in a cup, whatever cup you want? The oceans, all seven oceans and hundreds of millions of stars. You can, through your inner vision, through the eye of concentration, birth and death, and every realm of existence is possible through this collection and concentration and focusing of the energy of mind, like a laser, like a telescope, like a microscope. And I'm not suggesting you do all that yoga stuff. It's fun, but it takes almost, you know, it takes years and lifetimes to do some of that stuff. So it's, it's good, it's nice to do. But in a much more practical way, you can work with the breath. You can take half of your meditation every day, 15 minutes or half an hour. You can work with it when you are running or jogging. You can work with it when you're in a meeting to how to calm down. And when you get really quiet and you take some time to meditate for part of a day or you sit, then you can start to really study it like it was that fish or like it was a flower. And in it, you can learn a lot about birth and death, about all the resistances and the fears and the fires and what it's like to let go of them and to rest in the present moment. You can learn a lot about the elements that make up who we are, the physical elements, the mental elements, consciousness itself. All that can be revealed in the simple thing of observing the breath. So I give it to you tonight as something to talk about, to give you some sense and maybe a little inspiration that even in this very rote and simple exercise, there are worlds to discover. Just as if you could take a flower and pick it and really look in it and understand that one flower, you could understand everything in one flower. <laughs>